This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Great leaders almost instinctively demonstrate how much they care about their people. It is part of who they are. Truly great leaders seem to know exactly when to apply this skill at the right moment and in the right way. Valeria Tellez interviews Craig B. Weldon, the author of Leadership, The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. Craig's leadership journey began as an Eagle Scout at age 14. 30 years later, he was the youngest general in the United States Army. Combined with another nine years as a member of the Senior Executive Service with the U.S. Marine Corps, he has led thousands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and civilians while serving 10 years in Europe and another 12 in the Pacific. In 2011, he was inducted into the Purdue University Tri-Service ROTC Hall of Fame. In March 2019, he published Leadership, the art of inspiring people to be their best, winning three book awards and attaining number one international bestseller status on Amazon. Craig is now a global Fortune 500 speaker and lives in Bluffton, South Carolina. Meet Craig at craigbweldon.com. Here is the interview with Craig B. Weldon. In your own words, who is Craig B. Weldon? Well, I'm a person who has spent uh, most of my adult life in the military or around the military. I spent 30 years in uniform. I spent another nine years uh, working as a senior civilian for the Marine Corps. And I spent uh, another seven years as a consultant doing mostly work for the uh, military. And as a kid growing up, uh, my father was in the Air Force. So my entire life, I'd been in and around the United States military. And um, this is really the first time in the last year and a half since I retired from the military that I've had an opportunity to strike out and do something different. And I'm, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. What is one of the most, let's say, profound or important lessons you have learned from being working in the military? Well, I've worked around uh, thousands and thousands of incredibly talented and dedicated soldiers, civilians of all types. Uh, and in the military, you get quite the blending of uh, races and gender yeah, yeah. Uh, and even nationalities. We have people come yeah. in from other countries that join the United States military. And what I've learned from all of them is the most part – Every single one of them joined for the right kinds of reasons, selfless service to the nation. Uh, some of them have other reasons. They want to get 
you know, some money for college and they want to grow up and they want to adventure, they want to see the world. But, you know, after 40 years of being around soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, what has impressed me is the incredible, dedicated, selfless service that each of them brings to this. I mean, we are 19, what, 20? We're 20 years now since 9-11. So we have essentially been at war for 20 years and we still have people who were not even born yet on 9-11 who are stepping up, raising their hand and saying, send me into harm's way. Uh, I want to defend my country. So you wrote the book, Leadership, the Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. My first warm-up question for you is strength. What is your definition of strength? What is to be strong? Well, there's physical strength, there's moral strength, there's character strength. There are many different kinds of strength. So I guess it would depend on which one of those you were talking about. Uh, you can have tremendous physical strength, mm -hmm. but have little uh, moral strength right. or character strength and, right. or vice versa. You can have tremendous uh, character strength and not have little physical strength. I mean, look at, uh, oh, uh, I mean, there's so many examples of people in all those categories. So it really depends on which kind of strength we're talking about. That's true. So I guess when I ask for strength, ask the question, it's really the kind of, um, the more abstract kind of idea of being strong, um, not really physical, but yeah, in the sense of a character, in the sense of spirit. Yeah, think of somebody like Mother Teresa, mm, for example, yeah, yeah. Uh, who has unbelievable character and moral strength, but a little little frail woman when mm. she was uh, moving around the world. Uh, think of, uh, and I don't remember her name, the young girl that was almost assassinated by uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan because she was wanting to make sure girls could go to school. And she, she has become the hero of of uh, so many millions and inspiration to so many millions of young girls around the world. I mean, that is a strength that is well beyond uh, physical strength, certainly. Before we talk about the chapter 18 in your book, The Light at the End of the Tunnel, I have another warm-up question for you, Craig. It is about peace. So I wonder if war, it's really needed in order to restore peace or to find peace? Yeah, I mean, I, it's very idealistic, I think, and to somewhat, to some degree, a bit naive to think that we will eventually get to peace in our time and be able to sustain it because the world is just not like that. Uh, and that's the reason the United States has a military and most nations have militaries. Uh, and that's the reason you have police departments in cities and towns and yeah. counties and so forth is to help to maintain the peace. And oftentimes a strong military, a strong police department, a strong sheriff's department, law enforcement, a justice system that is fair uh, but holds people accountable, all those kinds of things help to deter uh, aggressive behavior and keep uh, a more peaceful environment. And when you don't have those, uh, your society often breaks down or wars result. So I am obviously, and you, I think you'll find that most people that have served in the military are peace advocates, ironically. Hmm, we, are not, right. we are not people who want to go to war. Yeah. We are people who want to keep the peace. If you go to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, the, where the Army War College is, they send a senior most officers in the army there 
after they've been in the Army for about 20 years for a one-year course, there is a sign outside at the front gate that says, Peace Through Strength. Mm. Peace mm. Through Strength. And that. That, was, that was the philosophy of Ronald Reagan when he came in in 1980 to become the president, is that the way we were going to confront the Soviet Union and deter them from either starting World War III or reinvading Europe was to demonstrate that it would be too costly for them to do that. So he built up the United States military, and as we all know, history now shows us that the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, the Soviet Union fell apart, Eastern European countries broke away from the Soviet Union, became independent, many and many of them joined NATO and became part of the European family and now part of the European Union, and all that was done without firing a single shot mm, right. um, because we achieved peace through strength. And another question that comes to mind is this disruption and the violence and all these challenges we see in the world that we're not reality here. Where do you think this is coming from? What is the source of this violence, of this, let's say, disorder? Would you say power? Are they trying, most people are trying to control and force others? Let's think about a playground uh, at an elementary school. And there's a bully yeah. and he goes out onto the mm. playground and he starts getting his way by pushing people around and he starts stealing their lunch money or yeah. stealing their toys or beating up on people, demonstrating that he has power. Mm. If there's no deterrent to that, yeah. uh, then they become worse and worse and they grow up like that. And that's the reason you have a teacher out there to monitor the playground to make sure uh, that those kinds of activities don't happen. So that's a very simple example if you put it on a macro scale and place that same those same principles into a town, into a city, mm-hmm. into, a, into a nation, uh, you get back to the same thing, peace through strength. The, you have to have structure, you have to have order in order to deter people from... Uh, rising up and acting bad. Uh, look at the, the development of pre-World War II with Adolf Hitler and the mm. rise of the Nazis and Mussolini in Italy and what the Japanese were doing in the 30s before uh, World War I actually broke out. The world had been at war for many, many years before the United States entered it in 1941. And then it was over four years uh, later because of the United States' ability to pull together all the allies and bring to force uh, to bear the full weight, power, and capabilities of the, um, of the United States uh, military. I think there needs to be a balance. The, not everybody is, is, is wonderful. Uh, we, I think it's naive to expect that everybody's going to treat everybody with the same level of respect. That's true. Uh, so you have to stand up and be counted and protect uh, those who are weaker. Yeah, that really resonates true to me, the idea of creating boundaries. So we have to have them, even personally, that has been, for me, has been a challenge to creating those boundaries. Other people in my family even <laughs> say no mm-hmm. and all that. So mm-hmm. I can imagine how important it is at a larger scale, dealing with lots of minds, lots of people. Let me ask you this question. I know so many here. Uh, power. What is your understanding and idea of power? Well, 
uh, I don't like the word power, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I like the word influence. Yeah. And I and I like the word um, inspire. Mm, and yeah. I think you can achieve the same ends by doing it in smarter. Power yeah. is achieved in a number of different ways. Too often it is applied poorly, and uh, we have seen the results. If I go back to the World War One, uh, or I'm sorry, the World War Two analogy, uh, Nazi Germany had power. Uh, Japan had power. They applied that power in ways that were very, very destructive. Eventually, the United States entered the war and they had power and they applied it in a way that was still destructive, but it ended the tyrant, uh, tyrannical behaviors of other nation states. The Soviet Union had power in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. But then when the power perception of the United States capabilities got to a certain point, the Soviet Union realized that they could not compete. And so they collapsed and they fell apart. And so the application of power mm-hmm. uh, in those circumstances, a, a bully on the on the playground, uh, the same thing. He may have power uh, while he's there by himself. But if the, all the kids bonded together mm-hmm. to confront him yeah. or the teacher who is supposed to be watching what's going on in the playground, address that behavior and and discipline that bully, uh, then he could diminish, they could diminish his power. So there is a balance of power and power is good sometimes and it is bad sometimes. But again, I try to steal away from uh, power and and try to, you know, think of influence and and inspiration. You know, men's use of powerful positions. We're watching this unfold right right now in the state of New York with Governor uh, Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, It is becoming evident now that he has wielded power in an unhealthy way, particularly around young women for years. And they they were intimidated uh, in such a way that they did not come forward because it's very difficult to step forward and say that a very powerful person has that kind of influence. Uh, there's strength in numbers. Right. So when one woman was brave enough to say, this is wrong, I need to do something about it, then you can see that six or seven others fell in line and said, hey, uh, I'm with her. The Me Too movement's another classic example when that started uh, many women stepped forward, and, and I say good for them. And guess what? They now have power. They have the power to stand up to the abuse of, of um, powerful men. I think the, the issue is the idea of power that most people have, or the old idea that relates to abuse, manipulation, force, control. Those are very yeah, negative ways of using what we, the strength we have. I love... What do you say? I think I asked you the question the first uh, time I interviewed you. Yeah, I did ask the question about power and you said the same thing. So I love that, this new idea or your idea of power, which is empowering and inspiring ourselves and others. Yeah. So let me, if I can, I don't know how many of your listeners are repeat listeners and have heard our previous session. But for those who may be listening to this session and did not hear the previous one, let me tell a quick story yeah, that yeah. illustrates the difference uh, mm-hmm. between power and influence. Right. I once worked for a three-star general who was a consummate gentleman, never raised his voice in anger. He was 
very, very bright. He was very, very capable. He was very beloved. And because he never raised his voice in anger, there were some people that said, wow, he's a general. He could he could just, you know, scream at somebody and they'd jump 10 feet in the air. And my answer was he didn't need to scream at anybody. And the reason he didn't is because he inspired us in such a way that we would do everything we could to meet uh, his requirements. A colonel came up to me one time and said, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I said, really? (laughs) Why is that? (laughs) And he said, because I never wanted to disappoint him. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is powerful. Because if everybody in the organization felt that way, and I was, I was, because I was part of that organization, I can tell you that they did. What a unbelievable uh, ability for this organization to produce whatever it was intending to produce. Right. Uh, and that general didn't have mm-hmm. to do very much at all. He, all he had to do was say, there's the direction we need to go, and, uh, and the rest of the team would take him there. Right. That's, that's leadership. I know, Craig. I love that story and I love this idea in general. If we can really apply that to our lives, that power can be also expressed in the form of gentleness, of kindness, of love, of respect, and not force, control, force. I love your message. I have been saying that. I said that the last interview and I keep saying that because this is a, we need that as a reference, uh, women and men, both of us. I mean, um, Mother Teresa is an example of a powerful influence in the world. Gandhi was like that. Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King was like that. None of them individually had any, they didn't have armies behind them to show their power. They were one person, one voice. But because they were so inspirational, millions of people followed them. The chapter we are discussing today, as I mentioned earlier, 18, The Light at the End of the Tunnel. And you wrote something, you say in that chapter, great leaders almost instinctively demonstrate how much they care about their people. It is part of who they are. Truly great leaders seem to know exactly when to apply this skill at the right moment and in the right way. Talk to me for a moment about how you learned this lesson? How did you gain this insight? How did you come across this understanding? Yeah, well, I had a personal tragedy early in my life. Uh, I had had a very successful life up till this time. And uh, when I was about 22 years old, I had been in the army for a year. I married my college sweetheart. She was wonderful. She was everything I could expect her to be. She came down to Fort Hood, Texas, where I was assigned And two years later, she left me. And I was absolutely crushed. It was the first major failure I had had in my life. And I didn't really know how to deal with that. And so I really turned inward to keep my mind focused, to keep my mind busy, rather than go home and look at four empty walls and feel sorry for myself, I stayed at work. Now, I was a tank battalion uh, maintenance officer which means I was responsible for the maintenance of 58 tanks and another 50 vehicles. And uh, my office was in the motor pool where all these pieces of equipment were stored. And I find myself, found myself uh, down in my office in the motor pool on a Friday night at about 7.30 uh, doing paperwork. 
again, just to try to keep my mind busy uh, at the time. I was a first lieutenant. In walked the brigade commander. This is Friday night at 7.30. He walks into the motor pool and he walks into my office. Now, the brigade commander, for your listeners, was about five or six levels above me. He had he was a full colonel. He had the command of a 4,000 soldiers. I was just one of them. We had never met until that evening. And he came into my office. He said, Lieutenant, let's go take a walk in the motor pool. And I thought, what a perfect storm of bad luck. Here I am going through all these personal problems myself, and the brigade commander is going to inspect the motor pool at 7.30 on a Friday night. So I said, yes, sir. I got up. We walked outside. We all walked up and down the tank lines, back and forth and back and forth. And he never mentioned a single word about the maintenance of our vehicles. He never said anything about the condition or what they looked like. He never even mentioned anything about my personal problems. What he did talk about were the challenges that he had faced in his life and how he would overcome them. And when we got back to the front gate about 25 minutes later, he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, there's light at the end of the tunnel. You just can't see it yet. Have a great weekend. Wow. And, and what that experience did for me was it demonstrated that a senior leader in the organization, remember I was one of about 4,000 soldiers that he commanded, a senior leader had heard from somebody that I was going through some tough times and that I was dealing with it by staying at work. And he went down and sought me out, found me on a Friday night in the motor pool, and he demonstrated to me that a senior leader cared I was in a dark place that time in my life, and I didn't think that there was light at the end of my tunnel. So about four months later, I left Fort Hood, and I went to Fort Knox, Kentucky to attend a course. And about three months into that course, I met a young lady named Karen Lusk, and six months later, we were married. And she has been with me now for 44 years. I cannot imagine life turning out differently than it did. I have two wonderful children. I have the finest grandchild on the planet. And as I reflect back on 1976 in that walk through the motor pool, I had no idea what was at the end of the tunnel. All I knew was that I was in it and it was dark. I didn't know how long it was and whether I would ever come out the other end. And as I think about this kind of a situation, particularly for young people, is that when they go into a very dark place like that and they have a personal tragedy, a loss of a loved one, a divorce, a loss of a job, a serious illness, whatever the case may be, sometimes they give up and sometimes they take their life. And that is too bad because there often is light at the end of the tunnel as my meeting Karen Lusk demonstrates. Now, there's one more aspect to this story. If you fast forward about 10 years, maybe 12 years, I'm now a battalion commander at Fort Knox, Kentucky. I had a thousand soldiers that I was in command of. And I learned from the base that Lieutenant General, three-star general, uh, was the same brigade commander, Jack Woodmancy, was coming to Fort Knox to visit. He was retired by this time, but he was coming for a visit. And I called the protocol office and I said, hey, General Woodmansey's coming to Fort Knox. I used to work for him years ago at Fort Hood, Texas. He was my brigade commander. I would love for him to come over and talk to my soldiers, uh, my officers about leadership. 
do you, do you think you could ask him if he would do that? And they did. He agreed, and he came over. And I told that story of that night in the motor pool to all my officers. And I said, you know, that is the essence of leadership. When you reach down into your organization to the very bottom, and I was near the bottom of that organization on the wiring diagram and the organizational chart, and you demonstrate to the junior people that leaders care about them. And I've never forgotten that story. And it's one of those, what I call rocks in my rucksack that I've carried with me my entire life. Because I know that as I get around other people, particularly young people, I want to make sure that I ask them, hey, how are you doing? Everything okay? Right. Or if I learn that it's not okay, that I go put my arm on somebody's shoulder and tell them there's light at the end of your tunnel. You just can't see it yet. That is um, well, a great message. I'm wondering how we can teach young people or inspire them. I mean, you're doing that, but your work and your stories and by being you, doing what you do, that's a great inspiration. Can we learn this on our own somehow, Craig, how to be, become resilient and have that wisdom that things will be okay in the midst of chaos? Yeah, sometimes it's difficult when you're by yourself. So I, I would tell everybody, uh, lean on a friend. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was going through my divorce yeah. uh, in 1976, I had a friend, not, not just the brigade commander, but I had another friend who was a, a, a close friend of mine who, who was there for me uh, the whole time. And he said, you know, hey, uh, he, he's the reason I took up gol golf. He was a big <laughs> golfer. And he said, yeah. hey, come on out this weekend. I'm going to teach you how to play golf. And I wasn't very good, and quite frankly, I'm still not very good. But uh, but I got out on the weekend, and rather than sit at home and do nothing and stare at the four walls, he had me walking up and down uh, 18 holes of golf. And uh, so he helped me tremendously by showing me that, that he cared about my mental health. Uh, I can assure you, all your listeners know somebody that is going through these kinds of things. And they may not even know that this person, this friend of them, this coworker, this family member mm. is going through this sort of thing. But I can assure you that everybody has those kinds of challenges at some time in their life. So reach out and ask them, how are you doing? What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? The hardest lesson to learn about myself, I've always had, and my wife would tell me, I've always underestimated myself. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean that I've always thought that I wasn't worthy of achieving certain things, uh, that I might not, I've, I've not been overconfident. Right. I've been, I've not had the confidence that perhaps I have. I think over time when I saw that I could actually do things, yeah. uh, that it, it helped a little bit. But if you ask me to self-evaluate myself throughout my adult life, I would generally evaluate myself at a lower level than other people would. And I've actually done tests where uh, they're called 360 evaluations where where I've gone to leadership courses where they have polled and asked people to do surveys about me, uh, people who worked for me, people that worked with me, my boss, and grade me essentially on dozens and dozens of different characteristics, uh, not just leadership, but moral characteristics and, and other things. And when I grade myself and when I look at the grades of others, I generally grade myself lower 
than than others do. So I've I seem to have always underestimated myself. When somebody said to me, "What do you want to do in the next chapter of your life?" when I realized I was going to retire from the military, I said, "I want to give back to the next generation those things that I've learned, both good and bad, over the past four or five decades." And they said, "Well, you need to write a book." And I said, are you kidding me? I can't write a book. I had never written a book. I'm 67 years old. You expect me to write a book at 67 years old? And as you know, I wrote a book. And it's done very well. It's won three national awards. It's a number one bestseller in five countries. But I didn't see that at the time I started off. So you got to step out and, uh, you know, give it a try. Just do it, as they say in the Nike commercial, just do it. And oftentimes you'll say, hey, I am capable of doing more than I thought I was. What happens to us, like has been my case too for many years, not being confident, self-confident, do you think is the way we have been conditioned, the way we have been brought up by our family, society? Yeah, I don't know. you know, sometimes it is it nature or is it nurture? Right. I mean, do, right. You, do you naturally have that? I mean, it gets to the whole issue of what kind of personality do we have? Am I an introvert? Am I an extrovert? Yeah. Am I am I underconfident? Am I overconfident? I think somebody who perhaps like you and I, who may have been underconfident over time when we see that we actually can do some of the things that we strive to achieve, Mm, uh, our confidence then grows. And I'll tell you, I'm a much more confident person today than I was in years past. But I always looked up that mountain wondering whether or not I could climb to the top, to use a metaphor. And oftentimes I was able to get to the top. But at the time I looked up there, I thought, wow, is that, that looks awfully high. So, so getting the encouragement of others, is obviously helpful, but to be quite frank, you also have to have some ability and some skills and recognize that hope is not a method. Mm -hmm. You just can't hope that you get there. (laughs) You've got to to roll up your sleeves (laughs) and and get on with it. So if you want to learn a language, it's going to take a while. If you want to climb a mountain, you better do some training ahead of time or run a marathon. You just can't go out on the first day having never run more than five kilometers and run a marathon. So I am a pragmatist and I realize that some of these things that appear to be uh, near unachievable may very well be achievable, but you need to prepare for them and train and get ready. So courage, commitment and practice. Yes. So talk to me about your sister and the lessons you have learned from um, her suicide. Let me start with a story. There's a professor. He's standing at the front of his class. And as he looks up on his class, he's got a table in front of him. It's covered with a cloth. Uh, There are some things underneath the table. He reaches out underneath them. He brings out a great big glass jar and he sets it on top of the table. He then pulls out a basket of rocks and he starts taking the rocks out of the basket and putting it into the jar one at a time. And when he fills it up to the top, he turns to the class and he says, is the jar full? And they all shake their head up and down and say, yep, the jar is full. So he then reaches out and brings out a bag of sand and he pours the sand into the jar and all the sand granules run down among the rocks to the bottom of the jar and slowly start filling up until it gets up to the top of the jar. And he turns to the class and he says, is the jar full? And they all kind of laugh and they say, well, you fooled us the first time, but (laughs) yeah, now the jar is full. (laughs) So he then pulls out a pitcher of water 
and he pours the water in the jar, and the water goes down among the granules of sand and the rocks to the bottom of the jar and then fills up to the top, and then he turns to the class and he says, is the jar full for the third time? Of course, everybody feels like an idiot now because <laughs> they've, always, they've seen the jar be full two times before, and now yeah. they're not sure what he could possibly put back in this jar. Yeah. And he says to the class, I don't have anything else to put in the jar, but the moral of the story is that each of these rocks represent what's most important in your life. Put the rocks in the jar first. Because if you put the sand and the water in the jar first, mm -hmm. and then you try to put the rocks in, you're going to leave a rock out. They're not all going to fit. What does this mean? This means that you need to prioritize your life and say to yourself, what's most important to me? Is it uh, a successful career? Is it a happy family? Is it my health? Is it my faith? Is it making money? Is it a combination of all those? I mean, what is most important? And those rocks represent what's most important. And then you prioritize those and put those first. So back to my sister. Yeah. My sister was about eight years younger than I was. And she took her life on Christmas of 1999. I, I was on vacation in Hawaii with my family, and I had my parents with me as well. And we were having dinner with a friend at a hotel when the phone rang, and uh, my friend answered the phone, and it was the Army Operations Center. And they were calling me on Christmas night, Christmas dinner, to tell me that my sister had died. She lived in southern Florida. And I hung. we didn't know the cause at the time, so I hung up. I told our host uh, about the phone call. And then I pulled my wife aside. I had two kids there as well. They were 12 and 14, I think, at the time. And I said, when dinner is over, I want you to take the kids up to the room in the hotel. I'm going to take my parents for a walk out onto the grounds of the hotel to tell them about this phone call. After dinner, we said our goodbye. My wife took the kids up to the room. I took my parents out to a big banyan tree near the Pacific Ocean on the beach. We sat down at a picnic table, and I told them that they had lost their only daughter, and that's what the phone call was. My mother fell off the bench onto the ground in, in screaming. Right. My father sat there in stunned silence. And I, quite frankly, I think my mother spent about the next week uh, in bed, most of the time just in shock from what had happened. We later learned that she had taken her own life because she wrote a suicide note that she left for her three kids. And they were aged, I think, 19, 17, and 14 at the time. And in that note, very eerily, she said, I cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, wow. which is exactly what that colonel was right. talking to me about right. back in 1976. Yeah. Now, she had a very troubled life. And as we look back and try to do the autopsy on, on her, uh, her life and determine how did this happen, there are some things perhaps that we could have done to prevent that from happening. But you never know what you don't know until it's too late right. to do that. True. But it made me reflect on my own life and say, what's important to me? What rocks do I have in my jar? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I had a daughter who was about 14 years old. And I said to myself, I need to make sure that my daughter is 
one of the rocks that I put in my jar uh, so that she gets off on life the right way. And at the time, she wasn't at any risk. Uh, she was a good student. She didn't have any uh, real problems with her life, but she was 14. And I was still in the Army. I had about 28 years service. So I turned to the Army and I said, look, I'd like to retire from the Army when I get to 30 years service. I ask you that you leave me at this duty station that I'm currently at until then, and then I'm going to go on to the next chapter of my life because I'm going to focus on making sure that my daughter gets launched off in life the right way. And the Army tried to talk me out of that, and I I insisted uh, and said, look, I'm sorry, I, I just got to reprioritize my life. And so I did. We got out. We moved to Florida. My daughter had two years of high school. Uh, she then commuted from home to the local college, University of Central Florida. She graduated cum laude. She had a part-time gig at Disney World, which she turned into a full-time job after she graduated. Yeah. She got several promotions there. She's been there 10 years. She's happily married. She owns her home, yeah. own home. She travels all over the world, has a wonderful life, and 95% of that she achieved on her own. But I like to think that 5% of that was me making sure that I put the conditions in her life as a high priority from myself. One more story here to make the point, uh, and then I'll pause. I had a good friend who graduated from West Point, and West Point has, as the United States Military Academy produces army officers. West Point has reunions every year, and after people retire, they go back to the reunions to see their old classmates and everything else. So I had a friend who was a retired colonel. He went back to a reunion at West Point, and he saw one of his classmates over across the room sitting at the bar by himself with his back turned to him. We'll call him John. So my friend went over to him, tapped him on the shoulder, said, hey, John, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a long time. And when John turned around, his eyes were watery. And my friend said to me, he said, I couldn't tell whether John had had too much to drink or something was bothering him. So I said to him, John, are you okay? And John said, and now John was a retired three-star general. So he'd had a hugely successful military career. And when he said, John, are you okay? John responded, you know, I busted my tail for 36 years. I did everything the Army asked me to. They rewarded me with promotions, command, and wonderful jobs. And along the way, my wife left me, and now my kids won't talk to me. So if you think about that story, you have to say to yourself, what rocks did John put in his jar back when he was serving in the Army? And it appears that he put his professional rocks in the jar first, and he obviously left a family rock out. True. Yeah. So, so my message to all your listeners yeah. is, you know, you can't fit everything in the jar because the sand and the water represent the noise, the extra stuff. Mm. And don't try to do absolutely everything. Prioritize. Mm. Figure out what's most important in your life and put those first. The question is just very powerful. What is most important to you? And I'm wondering if that changed, Craig, throughout life. I mean, it seems like for you has changed and from most of us kind of changed. So oh, sure. do we keep asking that question? You do. You should reevaluate that all the time. Constantly right. have it on your mind. I don't mean 24 hours a day, right. <laughs> but you, you should be constantly saying, am I doing the right thing? Am I headed in the right direction? Am I prioritizing the right things, the right people? 
in my life. Because if you don't, if you get so hyper-focused on one thing, you might find that you'll leave other things behind. Michael Phelps probably won more gold medals than any athlete in the history of the Olympics. But when Michael Phelps stopped swimming, he looked in the mirror and all he saw was a swimmer. Mm-hmm. And many people don't know this, but he contemplated suicide mm-hmm. because he had spent his entire young life all the way up to his mid to late 20s doing almost nothing but swimming. And now the Olympics were over. He had, I don't know how many, eight, nine gold medals and a, and a slew of other medals and so forth. And what's next in life? Here he is in his late 20s. What's there to look forward to now? He's gotten to the top of the mountain. Well, getting off the mountain. Think about climbing Mount Everest. If you achieve the top of Mount Everest, the hardest part is still to come. It's getting off the mountain. And that's where most people die, getting down the mountain. Mm -hmm. Well, when you're an Olympic athlete and you achieve the, the top of your profession at age 20 or 25 or 26 or something like that, and you don't, you can't convert that into something else like a profession uh, because they don't have professional swimmers, for example. Yeah. What do you do with the rest of your life? Um, and too often people struggle with that and they go into very deep states of depression and some of them take their own life. I would encourage all your leaders, uh, listeners to look on HBO for a show called The Weight of Gold. The Weight of Gold, and it is produced and narrated by Michael Phelps, and he talks about the weight of gold, and the metaphor is the gold medals from the Olympics. It is a very, very heavy burden to carry, and oftentimes people struggle either because they don't achieve it or because once they do achieve it, they don't know what to do with it after that or with the rest of their life and some of the sacrifices that come through look at all the female athletes mm-hmm. who are parts of the gymnastic team of the US Olympic team that were abused by coaches and doctors throughout right. their lives and they're they are scarred for life even though they may have won a gold medal at the Olympics it's very important to keep in mind balance right craig it's yeah yeah not focus on one thing one thing only well, there's risk to, of doing that, I guess. Right, I, right. You know, I, I wrote a chapter in my book called right. How Tall Is Your Ladder, which is basically, and I won't tell it now because I know we're running out of time. People can read it, but it's it's about, you know, how high do you climb on that ladder? And the answer is not everybody's going to get to the top of a ladder. Everybody's got a last rung on their ladder. And for most of us, it's somewhere in the middle. It's not at the very top. So once you get there, what do you do then? And my answer is you get on another ladder. So I spent 40 years on a military ladder, and I got pretty high on the military ladder. But when I retired from that, I got off that ladder, and I got on a new one. Oh, by the way, at the bottom, and it's called becoming an author and a speaker. Do you have any regrets? If you die tomorrow, would you regret anything? Uh, There are mistakes that I've made through my life. There's nothing I can do about them. I've tried to... I've tried to uh, fix those along the way. All of us make mistakes, no question. But I am now doing through my book and through my speaking uh, what I think uh, God put me on this earth to do. And that was to give back to the next generation those things that I've learned. And if I leave a legacy at all, whether I die tomorrow or I die 10 years or 20 years from now, I hope I'm remembered for 
giving back uh, the things that I've learned to the next generation. So, yeah, I've started that journey a year and a half ago. I'm very content with the path and the journey as it has gone, even with the pandemic. I've been able to do things on the Internet and so forth, but I've had both my COVID shots and I'm about to get out on the live circuit and start speaking in front of live audiences now in April. So I'm excited about that. And uh, again, if I if I get hit by a Mack truck tomorrow, oh, I will. Have, I think I will have uh, touched a few lives along the way, and I'll, and I'll be fine. Yeah, I love that sense of purpose and just the. We, we talked earlier about the courage, commitment. So your commitment to helping others, to serve in in such a way, in an inspiring way. My last question to you is: What are three things in life? that you wish everyone would know before they die, before they leave the body? Uh, three things. I think yeah. that they, one is that everybody on the planet has some value in them, mm. some strength, some goodness in them. Some people are very, very evil, but there are there's goodness in just about everybody. So, you know, when I see somebody who's troubled and has a difficult life, and I've run into these both professionally and personally and even inside my own family, I try to find the goodness in them and maximize, pull that out and demonstrate to them how powerful that can be. So I guess that would be number one. Number two is don't worry about the past. There's nothing you can do about changing it. You will make mistakes. Uh, look forward. Don't look in the path. I've had uh, friends who have lived in the past and uh, can't get past it. Uh, you know, colonels who didn't become a general and they retire and they, all they do is worry about the fact that they weren't a general. And I say to them, forget that. Mm -hmm. That's behind you. Look forward. There are so many adventures ahead of you. And, and I guess the last thing is that everybody should try to leave some something good uh, when they interact with people. You know, how, how can you positively influence somebody else? That's what I get the greatest satisfaction out is when an audience member comes up after I give a presentation and says, perhaps sometimes in tears, that was a very powerful message and I really appreciate it, hearing about it because I could relate so much to the stories that you told us today. That makes me feel wonderful. Thank you so much, Craig, again, for talking to me today and for your commitment to this, to leading a meaningful life and inspiring us to do the same. Well, thanks, Valerie. I had a great uh, time <laughs> the first time we did this. And for your <laughs> listeners, it was just posted yesterday. I yeah. listened to it last night and and uh, we had a great conversation. And I look forward to this one getting posted too. Yes. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Well, I tell people if you go to my website, craigweldon.com, W-H-E-L-D-E-N, you'll find a window into my soul. It's You'll find just about every every piece of information about me except what my DNA code is. There are sample demos there. There's testimonials about me, my book, my speaking. There are blogs. There are interviews like the one we're doing today. Uh, there's a lot of information there. So craigweldon.com. I'm also very accessible and happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. And you can find me easily there as well. Craig Weldon, I'm probably the only one on LinkedIn spelled that way. Uh, C-R-A-I-G-W-H-E-L-D-E-N. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Great. Bye for now, Craig. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening. To learn more about Craig B. Weldon and his work, please visit craigweldon.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.